Buenos dias, mi gente. It is June 26, 2020, and welcome back to another episode of Café con Leche Time with your hosts, Jaco Alvarado and Jacob Ibarra. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Well, we had another eventful week of news occur, so that gives us a lot to share with you guys today. All right, let's get into it, boys. Well, this week on June 23rd, there were six states that had their state primaries. We had Mississippi, North and South Carolina, Virginia, New York, and last but not least, Kentucky. And especially the big emphasis on Kentucky because they have a history of not being very fair when it comes to their voters. Kentucky this week did have a high turnout for their state primaries. However, the low-income areas face a lot of challenges. Originally, there were 3,500 polling places in place for the areas of, of low-income and people uh, where the demographics are focused on people of color. However, that shrunk from over 3,500 to only 200. A lot of voters are, you know, waiting in line for hours. And, of course, they, they couldn't do their mail-in votes because registering for, to be a mail-in voter is a lot harder. And most of the places for Indies in these communities closed the doors at 6 p.m., so leaving a lot of voters out in line still pretty much the entire day only to not vote. And this, this shouldn't be a shocker when it comes to Kentucky, especially because in all, of, all 50, of all 50 states, when it comes to voting and voter turnout, they're bottom at around 44th when it comes to voter suppression or basically fairness to their voters. And this is expected to have, and they are expected actually to have voter IDs for November for the presidential elections. Well, Jackie, that's a lot of thing, a lot of red flags going on in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So literally there's a lot of red flags. <laughs> I, I, I see what you did there, but <laughs> literally, but you know, Jackie, this is, you know, of course, another more examples of voter suppression in the United States. So should we have, should we change our approach when it comes to voting? The approach of voting definitely has to be changed because, I mean, the requirements that are set for voting to register for vote are a lot. And I mean, for a person that is from a fluent area is able to have those requirements to meet those requirements compared to when it comes to um, communities of color, especially in low-income communities, they don't have those qualifications or requirements to really especially when it comes to documentation for voting. I mean, and I had um, an opportunity as, as a freshman to work in a homeless shelter who was able to, that was able to help with documents because a lot of people that, who I worked with, my clients, I worked um, for this um, organization called St. John's Bread for Life and they had this um, organization that helped to help the homeless um, community get their ID because many of them were trying to get the, uh, trying to gain employment, shelter, even voting, because, I mean, they need documentation for voting. So I was able to see the requirements for voting definitely puts in perspective that it needs to be changed, because, I mean, someone who's homeless, who was born in the United States, 
has the right to vote but isn't able to because of the requirements needed to provide documentation in order to vote. So definitely needs to be a new system of the way we vote, meaning that there shouldn't be so many requirements to really get that voter ID. Like it should be really um, the way the approach needs to be limited and try to really put an account that that the voting is important to help, especially the communities of the demographic with the demographic of low income and people of color. Like minorities in general are affected by voting and not having that that right to vote, limiting that opportunity to right to vote, definitely continues the problem, the systemic oppression and racism that keeps going in our society. So Kentucky keeps literally putting the red flag as a priority, literally trying to limit their the right for minorities to vote. So that needs to be changed. That's And especially that's alarming for November because we're going to be voting for a huge presidential election and it's going to be important. And literally, Kentucky is, is known for its, for its reputation and legacy of being like a, literally a red state in a way. Like we have, there's racism there. The population continues to be demographically white. And I mean, in areas, it's a rural, Kentucky is like a very like, has parts of like rural areas and that's the reality of it. So it definitely needs to be a change within, within the, way, the way we vote as in trying to help people really get that um, right to vote. Because, I mean, there's many people that don't, don't have this opportunity to vote because there's so many requirements. So definitely trying to really help voters find a way to register themselves and really help them. Because, I mean, peop- like the whole point of the absentee ballot, like in New York, they, they were able to, people had to request absentee ballot to limit it polling Polling, um, turn, polling in person because of the pandemic. So it's quite alarming that they did this on purpose because, I mean, in a way, Kentucky did this on purpose because, in a way, they don't really care about their citizens, especially of low-income backgrounds. Because, I mean, if they have to vote in person, they're putting themselves in the health risk of being in the polling places. Because, I mean, you can try to maintain social distances, but it's a, if everyone's going to go out and polling, like, especially limiting the access to it, because, I mean, you, as you said, they were supposed to have, like, about 35, what was it? About over, a, little, a little over 3,500 polling places, but then that gets yeah, cut to 200. And that puts a huge health risk for, for residents, because, I mean, having limited polling places just puts everyone in a huge crowd, and that's going to increase the contact in COVID-19. So Kentucky is going to be looking at spikes in COVID-19 and they're going to keep questioning themselves why what happened like you did this disproportionately like did this on like you did this on purpose and really put people of minorities affecting being impacted from this virus so it's definitely Kentucky needs to really address this and hopefully when it comes November they really don't cut these polling places and in place people to really have their absentee ballots and hopefully some type of um, reform hopefully comes within voting for November. Yeah, well, we got to see what happens in November and but hopefully there hopefully this is not the case where it becomes a big issue for November. But mm-hmm. but speaking of um, November and and big decisions for the president um, uh, there was an important decision this week, again, by the Supreme Court that was in favor of the president. But enough of me talking. It, look, you, I can see that you're ready to, to get into this. So please, Jackie, take it away. Well, the Supreme Court 
this yesterday, actually, rejected asylum seekers that they have no right to adopt in court. So the Supreme Court decided to reside with, with the Trump administration in efforts to speed deportation of asylum seekers, ruling that a law that limits the role of federal courts in reviewing their decisions, that, and the, the decision was, on, was constitutional. So a little, a little bit of background of this case. So this case was concerning of a asylum seeker from Sri Lanka who was in fear and prosecution in his home country. So this case basically came upon that he was trying to seek asylum. Because in, in the Middle East, as we know, there's many fears of prosecution, violence, and etc. So he was trying to seek asylum in the United States. However, the Supreme Court bringing up this case, the vote was 7-2, to two, meaning that they recited with President Trump's, President Trump's um, administration's view that they, need, they were going to reject asylum seekers and deport them expedi- like an ex- expedited deportation. So this impacts definitely the asylum seekers who are currently seeking asylum right now. So apparently it doesn't affect people who have a case, already a case built up. It means it, people that are, are that who have a case approaching, it impacts them because they will not have that chance to appeal in court. So that definitely impacts a lot of asylum seekers and immigrants in general. And it's very disappointing the fact that the Supreme Court really pulled, like last week, they did a historic monumental decision and now they're backstabbing immigrants in a, this way. So apparently, so the claim from Justice Alito, who voted with, sided with the Trump administration, says he claimed, he wrote for the five, for the other five judges, judges that um, agreed with him, he said that asylum seekers or claims um, that they are threatening to overwhelm the immigration system. So he says that Congress was entitled to respond to that crisis. And he said that, yeah, like it's the reason why he said he sided with President Trump's um, the, um, view was because asylum seekers are threatening the immigration system. And that it was really Congress to come up with something. But at the same time, the Supreme Court has a huge role, as, we, as we've seen, Within the um, within the government, so them not allowing for judicial review, especially within these cases, is really going against the law of the Constitution itself of having that opportunity to really go to to go to federal court. And one of the judges, Sonia Sotomayor, quoted this is from the this source from the New York Times that today's that today's decision, as in yesterday, handcuffs the judi- judiciary's ability to perform its constitutional duty to safeguard individual liberty and dismantles a critical component of the separation of powers. So, Sonia Sotomayor wrote that in her opinion because she voted against this, against to really have asylum seekers have that opportunity to appeal in federal court. But now this decision that the Supreme Court did def- puts, the, puts federal courts in the hands of deciding if that asylum seeker is if their reason to to seek asylum is justified and is valid so that really really puts a burden on them on on like the asylum seekers because like it's it it forbids opportunity to really fight for their case you know they're they're putting themselves in a system that that the judicial review is needed and trump the trump administration throughout these four years have pushed so much to dismantle 
the opportunity for asylum seekers to really stay in the United States and to seek asylum. I mean, putting in federal courts into the hands of deciding whether or not it's justifiable and not giving the opportunity to really fight for their case just does not, is at all violating, like Sonia Sotomayor is the individual liberty to, to really fight for it. So definitely it's a, it's disappointing to have the Supreme Court put that, put, make that decision. And it's just terrifying to see what the net, what's going to happen to many people that are looking upon their gate, upon their cases of their immigration case. So it's very, it's very disheartening. And, and the Supreme Court doing this definitely is a backstab to what they wanted to celebrate last week. But now you're doing this definitely is hypocritical because I mean, you pass, you allow dreamers to stay here. But asylum seekers are also immigrants. So it's, it's very hypocritical. Well, well, this is a, a decision that could last for the remainder of the president's term. But mm-hmm. if if we see uh, Joe Biden win the election in November, that there could be a very good possibility for that to change. Yeah, hopefully over Joe Biden, the administration of hopefully the Biden administration really overturns this because, I mean, there's many people are going to be facing facing deportation literally in the next weeks or so. And so this is very important and needs to be held accountable. Like the Supreme Court just literally gave Trump the ability to really deportate everyone who are seeking, trying to seek asylum or now. So basically everyone who's at the border right now are in face of being deported back to their home countries. They won't even get a case hearing really. Yeah. Well, this is very interesting decision, especially that there were seven judges in favor of, of this decision compared to two who objected. Mm-hmm. And those two are Sonia Sotomayor who objected and Elena Kagan. So everyone else were, were siding with Trump. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. And before we get into the next topic, I just want to say since our last episode, we've had, uh, we still had multiple instances of police brutality and, you know, people dying at the people of color dying at the hands of the police. But this this one got a little too close to home for me. So on on Saturday, Saturday night, June 20th, there was an 18-year-old kid, really, an 18-year-old Salvadoreño Americano, Andres Guardado. Uh, he was killed by the, he was killed by police. He was a security guard for an auto shop. And so what happened was, he was shot, six rounds were shot by, by police officer Miguel Vega to him, to Andres. It was, on the police say Andres allegedly reached for a gun and fired at the officers first. But that story is coming under, it's becoming a little more skeptic because if you look into Vega's history, he has... He has a history of making some false statements, especially in investigations. And what makes the story even more suspect is that the police have also taken surveillance footage from the nearby businesses that have security cameras almost immediately after the incident happened and security cameras were destroyed. So, you know, it's another another person of color being killed by the police, you know, it was great. 
it was great to see the Latinx community and other allies really come for Andres in downtown LA this week. But it was really hard. It was really hard to watch, you know, some, some of the footage about that. And especially him being in Gardena, California, which is really close to my home. So it was, it was hard for me and, you know, my family to see that. And just another example, of course, another example of the police killing people of color and, you know, something just really has to change. Congress yesterday was really able to put that, put in, put into forth that step into change. So what happened yesterday that the how that the House was able to vote upon and it passed the Justice and Policing Act. And this Justice and Policing Act was in honor of George Floyd, who really pushed the movement to really address the systemic oppression to- towards the Black community and people of color, especially with the continuation of police brutality. So Congress was able to meet up today and really, uh, yeah, yesterday, I mean, to really meet up and address the concerns within each, which in their home districts as well, because each, each way, especially each Congress representative was able to really address the concerns of police brutality in their districts and states. So I'm going to talk about a little bit of what the Justice and Policing Act entitles. So it has major components, so I'm going to basically break component each component and talk about each one. So the first um, thing that the, the act is, try- is really addressing is to ban police chokeholds, meaning that, that it holds for the federal law enforcement officers that they should put federal funding for state and local governments on implementing this ban for agency. So this bill that the Congress representative was able to draft and pass really requires that this deadly force of action is made for a last resort only. So they're trying to, this ban really puts in forth um, law enforcement to really use this as the last resort and trying to find other tactics to really address situations. So it would also, it, it would change and evaluate whether officers will use this, the, the, that the use of this force was justified and trying to find like a standard that's reasonable and one that is necessary. So it's really federal funds of each local law enforcement is trying, is going to put in their own funds to really try to find tactics to really ban, to really put in this ban to place. So that's really. Um, the second component works to end racial profiling, meaning that it ends, it's explicitly prohibiting um, profiling in law and requiring all law enforcement officers to participate in, tra- in training to recognize bias and discrimination, discrimination practices. It also requires the collection of data on investigatory activities to, in order to, pr- to really ensure that the pattern of racial profiling can be identified and rooted out. So in a way, it provides education for police officers to really to really end that racial profiling that continues that continues in we listen in news regarding police brutality so it really invests on data and research as well another thing is to ban the no knock warrants so this that the no knock warrants are the ones that led to the death of Breonna Taylor in her own home. And so this will make it illegal for the, under the federal level with federal funds to state local 
authorities conditioning on this uh, conditioning on banning the practice. So this makes this on a federal level illegal for for no knock warrants. So definitely that puts in just in a way justice a little bit for Breonna Taylor. But of course, their the police of force has to be accountable in order to really seek justice. So another component is that the limit limit on military equipment on American streets. So it's really trying to limit the weapons of military on law, local law enforcement, because as we've seen, that it is not necessary for local officials to have military weapons. So it's really not uh, really limiting the power of military equipment on police officers and local, uh, basically local officials, and really not having that military presence at all within law enforcement. So it's really trying to limit on that equipment. And so another thing um, is community and public safety. So this act definitely puts local, puts, um, just trying to establish like a public safety innovation grant. So it's really trying to support community-based organizations to build a task force for communities and try to really address um, public safety within their communities. So it's trying to invest in community-led organizations to really address issues. Because I mean, police officials are, as we know, have a lot of responsibility and take on issues that are not in at all they're equipped for. So this is trying to really put money investing, like, for example, mental health, um, putting investing like in schools, like trying to really um, allocate the funds to really have community led organizations, because I mean, having those type of leaders are really going to help address the the um, inequalities in the community. So that's definitely a, a huge thing. And another thing is to require all officers to work body cameras. So this will require all federal uniformed police officers to wear body cameras and will condition federal funds for state and local governments on their office on their officers to use the body cameras as well. So this definitely puts on the federal level that all officers are required to wear body cameras in addition to have on their dash on on their police vehicles be equipped with dashboard cameras to ensure that the police encounters are recorded to protect civil rights involved. Another thing is to hold police accountable in court. So this act would amend the law that currently limits the authority of prosecutors to hold police officers accountable for the misconduct. So this bill would eliminate qualified immunity for law enforcement personnel, making it possible for individuals who have been impacted by police brutality to sue for civil rights when their constitutional rights have been violated. And it investigates systemic police misconduct so definitely um, this is critical because it, um, it makes the federal justice department be fully empowered to investigate systemic misconduct in police departments. So it definitely puts the federal um, justice department really hold themselves accountable and really try to investigate these issues and not just really put them aside. So that, def um, that definitely is a step for really trying to hold police accountable. And also another thing is changing the culture of law enforcement. So this means to to implement in their training um, racial bias and um, eth ethical techniques to really deal with situations. So this definitely puts into education for law enforcement. So definitely changing that culture within law enforcement. So this is important because money will be 
invested into training programs to really promote better practices and practice discrimination investigations. And this is a step, really a step to try to really train officers and not have and not continue this, not having this continuation of police brutality. And that's really the main things that the bill um, is trying to address the, the racial inequalities, the racial discrimination, racial bias. So it's really trying to target really to hold police accountable and try to really put in tactics that they would, um, better tactics to really deal with situations. So that's really all of the bill itself. And um, this is like a step that the House was able to pass and hopefully the Senate is able to recognize these, um, these points and really put in agreement because I mean this type of bill is going to be a step to change in a way. So as you said, it, it came, it passed this week in the House? Yes, yesterday. Okay, it passed yesterday in the House, so now it has to go to the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, what chances do you give of this bill to pass in the Senate? Um, I would say maybe like a 45% chance. I mean, it's very... Um, the House, when things reach the House, it's very... Um, because I mean, the House is run by the Republican Party, and like in you know, the Senate, well, the House, not the House. I mean, the Senate, like the Senate itself. Basically, even the House too. It's basically. Um, I'm surprised that it really went through the House successfully. Because I mean, a lot of Republicans, you know, are very when it comes to policing, police um, reforms, they're t- they're quiet because I mean they they're supportive of the police force. So it was very. I was glad that it was able to pass through the House. But through the Senate, it is more of a really tough barrier because we have a huge, we have a Senate that's run by Republicans. So I'm not sure whether or not it's going to really, they're going to, the Republicans always find something that they don't like. So hopefully they're able to really put, just really seek, really um, agree with Democrats because I mean, this is, police brutality is an issue that can, we can, we've been, seen for years and nothing has changed i mean we like there's so there's history has said it itself that we haven't had that change so it's it's time for republicans to really to really put in the senate and put that forth to really make it um to really pass it so i really hope i say 45 percent chance because like i said the republicans when it comes to this issue there they have um they have partners in and sponsorship by like the police enforcement so it's very like I, it's going to be hard for them to really um, put their back towards this you know it's very um, I don't hopefully the Senate's really to come to their senses and if it were to pass in the Senate and the, pre- the president signs, signs of it and approves then it'll only be it'll be up to the states to really enforce yeah it's it, this bill is recognized it gives the recognition the, rec- the recognizes the um, the federal level that it needs to be in place, but it's really going to be up to the states to really put that funding. Because, like, as I kept saying, like, you heard me say funding and money, because it's supposed to be that the law, local law enforcement really put that funding into implementing these bans and these um, education things. So it's really going to be up to states to really put in that thing. Because, I mean, from the federal level, it says states have to do this, but it doesn't really say the amount of money that needs to be invested 
for states to do this. You know what I mean? Like, it kind of gives them... Like, I saw this bill as definitely, like, a, like, a, like it's good in a way that it addresses that this, what, this is wrong, this is what's happening, but it doesn't really give a clear-cut, um, you know, like, clear-cut um, number of what money needs to be invested in. And I understand with each state it's different, but at the same time it's going to give it's going to give law enforcement like like the like the liberty to like in a little bit of freedom to decide whether what how much funding is really going to be put in so it definitely gives a recognition that yes you need to limit on your military um weapons and not have well officials have those military weapons but at the same time like it's it varies like it like how much are you going to invest in education to really really equip your officers to not have those um, situations where they have to do that. Like how, like it's, it gives like a, it gives like an outline to what law enforcement should do and they have to do it, but doesn't give them like the, they can decide what's the, when the steps are going to happen. You know what I mean? doesn't give them like a clear cut, like, you know, this is what you have to do by this time. So it's like, it's a really good thing towards towards justice. And it's going to be interesting to see how the Senate's going to unfold with the Republicans. So it's going to be interesting to see what's going to happen. But this definitely this is a step forward because it acknowledges the research that needs to be done, like that needs to continue to be done. And it is, and it, and the fact that it wants to include data is important because I mean, as we heard and heard in a lot of stories, that the data is not there. For example, the body the body camera footage is not there it gets destroyed so definitely holds evidence accountable so definitely this is is an important step to change and hopefully the 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 senate is able to recognize this and put this into force so the president could in place this but then again if it goes to the president we'll see what happens but but first it has to get through the senate yeah through the senate so yeah this is this legislation definitely is an important aspect to fighting for this, for this issue. Well, all goes well and and passes through everything, you know. Then, like we said, it is it is only up to the states for to determine if they're going to imp- implement this bill properly. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it's gonna yeah. And speaking of states, you know, the United States, the United States is actually thinking about adding another state to another star to the flag and so for those who don't know uh, there's been for a, for, a, for a long time now there's been discussion if the nation's capital washington dc should be a state you know some there's there's arguments for yes there's arguments for no but jackie you were born in dc yes i was should dc be a state. DC definitely should be a state, and the vote is actually going to happen today, whether or not the House agrees to to establish DC as a state. So, um, this like this DC statehood has been a fight for a long time, for years, because DC like it's it's not recognized as a state, and a lot of people like when you look at DC, like you kind of like it kind of feels like a state but it's not recognized as one. Like, D.C. Is, operates as a state. Like, it has its, like, a birth certificates. Like, I have a birth t- certificate of D.C. It has death certificates. Um, 
marriage certificates and on and so forth. And they have licenses, licenses too. So it has state's functions, but they do not recognize the state. So D.C. is home to about 700,000 people and who are taxpayer dollars. And actually in 2018, it was reported that $28 billion was how much D.C. Res- DC was reporting in taxes. And like I said, in 2018, $28 billion. That's more than, any other, more than any other of the other states in 2018. D.C. has a huge economic um, involvement in the United States economy. Like, it's, it's, it's huge. And the fact that, we're, that they're not recognized as a state is problematic, especially when it comes to issues on D.C. We all, in D.C., it only has a mayor, Mira Bowser, who, who takes on basically the leadership position of, of what a governor does in, other, in the state and basically has to advocate for what's going on in D.C., so for those who don't know, D.C. Like, is, is, is not, isn't a state, so it doesn't have Senate representation. So that's really problematic when it comes, for example, in issues of drafting policy. So that's a huge thing. And it has, it has a representative in the, in the House, but she is a non-voting delegate. And her name is Eleanor Holmes Warren. So this definitely is problematic because as we can see yesterday, um, representatives of the house were able to vote on the justice and policy act for police brutality so she did not have a vote in the, in this policy so that's really problematic because dc is home to many residents of of Af- in the african black community there's a lot of african-american residents that are in dc and so they dc has been dealing with violence and police brutality for for years so the fact that they don't have a vote in the house the representative doesn't have a vote in policies like this is problematic and it continues the systemic racism in dc so and and republicans don't are are not in agreement in this because they think that this definitely will be another democratic vote and yes dc is is liberal and is known to be liberal when it comes to elections however this this vote is important because you want to continue to address the inequalities in, that exist. DC DC has when people think of DC, they tend to forget the the residents that actually are are actually part of DC. Like we've come to an we come to conclusion of corporate DC. So when people think of DC, it's more of like. The, of course, the government and the monuments and stuff, stuff like that, like the downtown area of D.C., but people don't recognize the actual neighborhoods that make D.C. wonderful, like the culture of it. Like we've come so accustomed to seeing the corporate culture that we think that's basically D.C. and that's not it and not accounting the neighborhoods and basically the individuals who provide and basically enrich D.C., and Republicans are just so focused on like the corporate part of it that that's why they don't want to make it a statehood. But it's important that they make this a state because residents are, especially in communities of color and low income, they're facing these inequalities and people don't know that. And then I, and the fact, and giving the power of statehood definitely puts this non voting delegate into her. She's able to really address the concerns that are happening in D.C. Because, I mean, Mayor Bowser, she 
she hasn't done it. She hasn't done a great job because I mean, her responsibility is huge. Like she basically isn't, she basically tells what the law enforcement does basically tell, basically allocates what education, what the funded education is. So it's definitely important that we have like, that it's not just her voice that she needs like there needs to be senators who can advocate for in in the Senate for what's happening in DC. There has to be a person, a voting member in, in the House, not just to really establish these policies because DC DC needs to be a state. Like it's 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 clear. Like it Republicans need to stop definitely definitely be in disagreement of this because I mean like we like we like we um see the facts that that dc has paid so much in taxes and it's not fair that they're not being having the state rights as other states so it's very it's important that the the hopefully the house votes yes on this because this has been a fight hopefully during these moments of police brutality like it's important that dc residents get their voice out because it's been long overdue but then because since DC is not a state, and you know, depending on where I guess where DC you live, you could be closer to Maryland mm-hmm. or Virginia, but mm-hmm. technically not live in those states. And that even if even if you're so close to you know an area in those states, you can't vote in state primaries. No, it definitely definitely like it. Like the only thing that DC really has to depend on is really like the mayor. Mayor Bowser and it definitely like it just doesn't it's it's an injustice because I mean DC has so many problems that people don't don't know about like I said DC has its residents especially people of color like in DC that have no funding for education really and are continuing poverty like it's ridiculous the fact that we like it's it's that people are ignoring that like it's dc has a huge poverty rate it's not it's not a it's a really expensive place to live and to get really justice for for people for dc residents is really making it a state so because since dc doesn't have that state power they're not really they're not really they don't receive that much federal funding compared to other states so since they're so focused on the corporate part of DC that they forget that they're people that are working class and low income fa- low income individuals, so they need to recognize that and definitely being being a state will be able to at least address at least address the problems that are there and putting a and putting a path towards really um, putting funds to allocate for resources because it's definitely an issue that people need to people need to recognize in the house needs to definitely pass on this um, reform. So hopefully they will pass it. I mean, it will conti- if, it, if they don't, it will continue to be on a fight and, and um, DC is not going to give up. All right, well, thank you, Jackie, for advocating for Washington, DC to be the 51st state. Yes. All right, well, <laughs> we reached that part of the show where, you know, we talked everything that we talked about everything that's been out there in the news, so I guess now it leaves us with our random thoughts. You, you can go. All first. right. Well, yeah, I'll go first because I know you have a lot to get off your chest later, but we'll save that. We'll save the best final thoughts for last. I'll go first. So, my my final random thoughts are again involving NASCAR, which we, I 
we we talked I talked about it a couple of weeks ago, a little bit. You know, NASCAR banning the Confederate flag from their races, but however, they are again in the spotlight because uh, there was an FBI investigation that NASCAR called for uh, because their their only black driver, Bubba Wallace. He reported uh, to NASCAR that in his garage, there was a rope that resembled a noose. And specific, so they wanted to get to the bottom of this investigation. How did the rope get in, get in here? Who, who put the noose, this uh, alleged noose, in the garage? So NASCAR, NASCAR was, was siding with Bubba Wallace. Bubba Wallace, excuse me. And... They called the FBI to investigate if there was some a hate crime. The FBI the FBI concluded that there was no there was not sufficient evidence to suggest that it was a hate crime, and the the FBI said that in, in the investigation that it was a a rope for the garage door. And whether you believe that it's the garage. For the garage, or it's it's a noose. It it was a bad look, especially. But mm-hmm. in you know, you, I guess the good thing is that NASCAR believed its driver and took it upon mm-hmm. themselves to immediately, you know, ask for an investigation. And even when not even not not, not a basically a company um, investigation, it was an actual investigation that they 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 brought in you know, the, the government instead of just handling it amongst themselves. And what I guess a lot of people now, like the, the criticism that this investigation is getting is that NASCAR jumped the gun. They tweeted out that they're doing an investigation, but they, in their tweet to support Bubba Wallace and showing that they support Bubba Wallace from the beginning, they said that the FBI, the FBI is going to investigate this hate crime. Instead of saying, you know, instead of putting alleged in the beginning, mm-hmm. but more people got mad that NASCAR, instead of, you know, waiting for an investigation to be concluded and waiting for all the facts to get mm-hmm. out, that they immediately sided with their driver. And now that the FBI says that it wasn't a noose. As a, as initially thought, and the NASCAR, you know, sent on a picture like this is what, this is what the rope looked like that Bubba Wallace made a complaint about, and it clearly looks like a noose, and oh, and then I, I forgot which person argued that oh that's, that's how they tie their knots for all the garage doors. Well, I mean, I don't see why you have to tie it like a noose. Why can't you just tie it like, a regular knot, and especially and especially mm-hmm. it looks bad, especially when you only have one black driver and in his garage it looks like a noose and we know who the demographics for NASCAR really appeals to and oh and again this also ties back into the people who were more outraged by or actually almost kind of happy that the FBI said that it wasn't a noose are the people mostly the people who are upset that NASCAR quote unquote caved in to public uh, peer pressure about banning the Confederate flag. So people are calling Bubba Wallace a liar. 
um, saying that he's uh, he's that he's also in being a liar that he's a diva or he's you know he has soft skin and you know this is he's kind of ruining race relations and um and they're mostly people the people who make these arguments are still mostly are there's a strong correlation to them being mad that the confederate flag is now gone from nascar so it's very telling that which people are are more mad about how the investigation started and they're more mad at Bubba Wallace than the fact that it could have been a noose in his garage. And even on this week on ESPN, there was a, you know, ESPN commentator, you know, uh, personality and even radio host. Um, his name is Will Kane. He, he's, 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 you can tell he's more on the conservative side. He's more the conservative voice for ESPN. And every now and then, it's funny. Every now and then, I actually like his takes when it comes to me talking about football or basketball. He's not. He's not there to just be, you know, the the conservative voice for at any reason. No, he he has some good input every now and then. But he invited another ESPN host and personality on the show to talk about the issue, and pretty much it was clear to tell like, that who who was. Which of these two personalities, uh, Will Kane and the guest Bamani Jones, was on which side of the argument? Well, Will Kane said Bubba Wallace is, in fact, and even the media hurting race relations in this country is like, okay, that's like that's that's taking it a pretty a step way too far just because the mm-hmm. because the F, because the FBI concluded that there's not strong evidence to suggest that it was a hate crime. Meanwhile, like Bomani Jones, you know, also you know black man you know saying that that you know but you're also ignoring the probability of this being a noose in a black man's garage when you know what kind of what kind of demographics are tailored to this sport and the fact that like also like calling out that well you know someone like will kane said that this hurts this hurts you know the fight towards racial justice or racial equality and racial equity like like really this little thing is going to it makes everything worse because it's like you know, those people who could be persuaded to pursue um, racial equality, you know, all of a sudden, like because of this one little, this this one story, could you know, and instead of taking two steps forward, they'll take like five steps backwards. And of course, you know, I was it was really funny to see Bamani Jones you know, call out Will Kane on his own show to say, if if these people are gonna get so mad that about the possibility of this man seeing, you know, a hate crime in his garage and all of a sudden are not going to take those steps towards fighting for racial equality. You're like, you give them too much credit for being, you know, to be on the, on the right side of history to fight for racial equality. So, so I gotta, very interesting to see, you know, NASCAR being in the headlines again. And I, I am on the side with, with, I, I will stand with Bubba Wallace because he, he is the minority in NASCAR. Most of the hatred is going to come towards him. And the, f- the fact that most of these people who are also almost celebrating this, you know, are, are mad about the Confederate flag not being a part of the NASCAR tradition anymore, man. It's, it's pretty sad. 
So I, they're part of the yeah, problem. It's, it's, it's the, the problem is not the fact that he misinterpreted a noose. The, the problem is more about the, seeing the effects of this, right? About how, mm-hmm. about how just because he could be right still, like, in the fact that, you know, it, it's a noose because the, the historical context of, of how the rope looks, yes, it's a noose. So, but seeing, seeing the aftermath of how of him being called a liar and and a lot of people, you know, saying, you know, yeah, a lot of awful things towards him. That's that's what I saw more of the problem than him. Yeah, they're feeding into like the the, the stigma and the continuation of oppression to really of towards towards black people, especially as like it just it's it's ridiculous to see how like the effect of, of it, but that's the reality of it and it's and it's disheartening to see that, but at the same time, it's good that he was able to really step up and really and really address this. Because I mean, especially like in NASCAR, it's definitely a predominantly white sport. Predominantly, it is a predominantly white sport, and the viewers are white. So definitely, like it's good. I that's really that's good that he was able to really step up and address this instead of like he he had. I bet definitely he had the fear, and he kind of. He kind of ha- he had the fear of what was gonna what was gonna happen like the impact of it, but he was able to really because he knew the uh, the boundaries and obstacles he was gonna have to like really face in order to really report this exactly. So, and also, so it's really also, and so I'm like it's bravery that he has that he was able to do that and definitely was it's able to address the continuation of the problem that's going on that's continuing going on. It's going on now and has been going on for years. And also, one thing that was that you know, a good thing to point out, like, what if this one was real but the next one is fake? Well, the outcry is still going to be for the fake one, and we're going to ignore the real mm-hmm. one, or, or even like the ne- the next one could be real, but all of a sudden we're not, are we not supposed to believe him anymore because he's already been proven quote unquote wrong that it wasn't noose? Well, I mean, yeah, the issue is more about people's reaction seeing. Not only that NASCAR, you know, wants to support their driver, basically their employee, but the fact that how many conservatives just put their, you know, like arms up in the air crying that, you know, like, wow, look, look at how biased the NASCAR is towards, you know, supporting their driver rather than letting an investigation happen. Well, I think you want, you, you hope he's, that he's wrong, but still, like it's not out of the possibility that that would have happened, mm-hmm. and that's you know that's that's my final random thought. You know, say I that I stand with the Bubba Wallace. You know, hoping that mm-hmm. hopefully hoping that he doesn't have to keep facing these you know, racial spews and ra- and racist racist remarks and racial taunts. That's like it's very unfortunate, and so I'm with Bubba Wallace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely it's it's interesting to see how especially NASCAR trying to really step up to really to really address the racial inequalities within the sport because I mean like compared I mean they're I like it's interesting to see that they're definitely putting that step towards change and hopefully other other huge head, like sports industries really put that because I mean like for example the NFL continue the NFL 
saying that they stand for racial injustices, but then again, they're Washington's football team. Oh still, boy! Still, its name is 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 the problem as well. So it's like it's interesting to see how, especially during, during now that we're going through this global pandemic, and especially the movements that have been created, especially towards police brutality, to really see how the sports industry kind of has they say kind of overturn their point of views, you know what I mean? Like, it's interesting to see that, how it's, def- it's like, it's long overdue, but it's interesting to see that they're, that it's important that they're addressing these things now, and it, it, although it's long overdue, but like I said, it's interesting to see how things are unfolding, especially within the sports industry, because I feel like a lot of times people don't realize that politics plays a huge part in sports. Definitely. Like, like, a lot of people think it doesn't, but, like, it's a part entertainment, but, like, it, it is, but there's so, there's so many parts of it that involve politics in sports. Like, it's not, it's not clear-cut as people think it is. Like, everything, like, everything that you, like, sports, like I said, is a huge part of politics and has created political movements as well. So, it's definitely something that people need to recognize. Like, it's, you're going to watch sports, but definitely is a, it does play in po- part of politics, so. Oh, de- definitely. Yeah. It's it's not it's it. They go hand in hand since the beginning, and if people mm-hmm. and remember, like you know, people who you know, like, oh they don't care about the about the politics and sports. Well, I mean then you should always be complaining that every championship team goes to the White House. Mm-hmm. Like it's 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 definitely like it plays hand in hand. Like it's in all the sports. Like it's it's it all like it all correlates and connects in a way to politics. I mean, many political figures start supporting these teams, so you definitely it definitely has a part in, in it. I couldn't agree more. Well, but that's my final random thought. I'm, I am on the side with Bubba Wallace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we saved yours for last, so that I'm pretty. That we know that means it's going to be a real good one. So, Jackie, what are those final yeah, random thoughts? Yeah, long one. <laughs> so my random thought is, it's a really, it's a place that really is close to my heart i mean it's it is it's part of me and has been part of me since since birth is i want to talk about el salvador specifically the presidente my i call him my president because he's honestly the greatest and i'll tell you why naive bukele <sighs> <laughs> okay wow someone really cares about the president, president yeah president naive bukele so yeah, as as a Latina from with par- two parents from El Salvador, El Salvador definitely holds a place in my heart, and it is me. I mean, I'm, it's my family roots, it's my background, it's it's mi país. I call it mi país because I've I've it's 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 my family. So um, definitely, since since growing up, my parents have definitely um, incorporated a lot of the Salvadoran um um, culture to my life and and I've been really invested to since like growing up to really know about the about like the government how things are run because Salvador definitely um, has similar um, the structure the, the structure of government's similar to what the United States is and growing up like seeing the inequalities that are happening in Salvador definitely have hit close to my heart because I mean my family's over my whole family's over there in El Salvador, and I've been really interested to see what what's been happening in El Salvador since since I was little. Because I mean, my parents and my family members who are here in the United States as well care about what's happening in El Salvador. Because I mean, 
as many immigrants in this country that send money to to their home to their home countries like it's important to know what's happening over there because i mean you're investing helping family over there and want to continue helping family members you know because the governments over there in latin american countries are corrupt have been for centuries but with that being said el salvador last year was able to really have an historical um movement with president with now president Nayib Bukele so Nayib Bukele is actually um he's about he's like 35 I think he's pretty young 35 36 anyways mid 30s he was elected last June 2019 and he's historical in a way because he is part of a third party because the Salvador has two parties so they have a two-party system called um two-party system that has two parties one is called FMLN, which is mostly known as the Democratic, um, and we're going to compare it to the United States, more of the Democratic Party, and then ARENA, which is more of the Republican Conservative Party. And um, these two historically have been the two parties that Salvador's government has revolved on. So usually the presidents are come from either these two parties. However, historically, these both parties, especially FMLN, who historically has um, presidents who commit money laundering, fraud, etc., et and who continue who can, had continue stealing money from the government for their own benefit. And Arena definitely has, like I said, more of the conservative val- um, values, and definitely um, has favored in the money laundering and so on and so forth. So those are the two parties that usually the government runs on. But however, in 2019, that was changed with Nayib Bukele, who is under the Union of Democratic Change with the CDU which is this, um, sent the Cambio Democrático um, Union. So basically he ran under that party and his campaigning was under the Campaña Nuevas Ideas, which is the campaign of new ideas. So he was the third party that a lot of people thought that was not going to win. So when he won, that was historical because they never had this new party under presidential leadership. So he was able to take on um, with this new party this leadership and this and his year he he asked june 1st was when he completed his first year and so the government the, the executive branch of Salvador, so the president serves under one term so he can't a term of five years so he can't consecutively reelect himself so um so if he was gonna get if he was gonna run again he would have to wait and like not consecutive, you can't run consecutively. So we'd have to run, if you were to run for president again, he would have to do it like after um, five years later. So like he can't consecutively run. So that's interesting. Um, and as Salvador has also has a vice president, um, the vice president, his last name is Uola. Um, I think Felix, I forget his middle name, but it's like Felix Uola. So that's the vice president and the, um, the house of the Salvador is, um, consists of 64 deputies, which is, they call it diputados, which are basically House uh, representatives, like, compared, like, if we're going to compare it to the United States, so that's basically what they are. And El Salvador also has governors, which are the gobernadores, and alcaldes, which are mayors. So that's basically the government system itself of El Salvador. So back to Nayib Bukele. Nayib Bukele was elected June 1st, 2019, so recently he um, completed his first year and. I'm going to talk about basically the changes that he's had for Salvador because Nayib Bukele, like I said, he is someone who works for the pueblo de Salvador. He, since day one of his campaigning, 
he has advocated for the need to help a pueblo salvadoreño. Like he cares for the community. Um, his dad actually was a governor on, when um, growing up, so he kind of followed his dad's footsteps and kind of, kind of reached out more for like the presidential seat. And he, I mean, he was a- he's able to. So, um, Bukele definitely. Um, there have been a lot of like um, skepticism towards Bukele from the from the Congress representatives in the Salvador because. They, like I said, they, they, the diputados are more of a, they believe on the more conservative side of things. So they, they come in disagreements with Bukele because, I mean, Bukele is more of like a social, more of a socialist. Like he definitely, like I said, he cares for the pueblo salvadoreño and really wants to um, change the reputation of the, of the, of, Salvador, of the Salvadoran government because the, the gobierno salvadoreño is known for its money laundering and continuation of stealing money from the government and trying to benefit themselves. And Bukele has shown within this year so far that he is not at all trying to steal money. So, like, within this year of his presidency, he, he has been able to really decrease violence in El Salvador. Like, recently, on the, this past week, on the 24th, El Salvador reported having zero homicides. And that's really historic because El Salvador has continued, has for years have, have a huge um, day-to-day homicides. Like it's, he's been able to really address the concern of violence in the Salvador and has been able to really put in place legislation to stop the maras, which are known as the gangs in the Salvador, and really stop them. Like he, he, he did not come to play with the, with the maras. Like he, from the first day of his campaigning, was able to really advocating saying that these maras have to go these maras need to be regulated like it can't be the government can't be can't be continuing to support these maras because i mean they're promoting these violence to these communities and endangering it's like they're they instead of they they con mara has been able to conquer so many so many neighborhoods and villages and like taking like the liberty of these civilians like they they torture them like they they've been so like restricted on these civilians like it's just ridiculous so Bukele has been able to address it and during this past year he's been able to stop so many maras from from really corrupting neighborhoods and promoting this violence that continues in the Salvador so he's been successful at really trying to really contain them and really put them accountable like have them in jail and really pay have their hold them accountable and really try to really help the pueblo salvadoreño rise like he he has seen that so many people are suffering like he understands that there's poverty and he's been trying to do his best to really um solve these issues and to him it's been a barrier to really try to be in correlation with the diputados because diputados they're just selfish they many of them are from all of them are from most of the parties from the two-party system that i mentioned and they and they believe in those values of like not giving money to where things need to be allocated. So Bukele has been trying to really like, like clapping back actually at the diputados and really stating the fact of what it is. And I admire his leadership, especially during these times of the coronavirus, because he, he has, he's been able to really tell the diputados to really stop, stop, stop what they're doing and really try to focus on the, on the health of the Salvadoreños. Like, Bukele was able to really 
put in the stand, especially during this coronavirus, to really, for example, he put um, a lockdown for about like a month. He was able to put a lockdown nationwide, nation like nation, what I mean, nationwide lockdown, like within the Salvador. Like he was able to implement that and have and really in hope to decrease the coronavirus um, infection because I mean, El Salvador is, 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 it's, it's country itself, it's filled with poverty and, and it's, and he really tried to, with that lockdown, try to really decrease the infections and so far El Salvador has about like 6,000 infections, which is, which is not as bad, but it's huge for a country, but he's been, for a country that small in Central America with not that much resources to really, um, like you know, sustain itself. So he has been able to really, like I said, but really to be protected his his citizens. And like that lockdown that he put in for like about a month, he was we saw the decrease because a lot of people, a lot of people, Salvadorans were not were not at all following um, protocols at all. Because I mean, they they kept saying that they have the need to. I mean, yes, there's a need to work, but at the same time, your health comes first. And so Bukele was kept telling people, his, his um, citizens, to really, like, stay indoors, to. And what's interesting that he, during this lockdown, was that, so, Salvadorinos have an ID called a Dewey. So, based on, like, your zip code, basically, they told you what days you can go out and do certain things. So, like, during this lockdown, like, depend on your zip code. You, your zip code had a specific, like, two days a week that told you when to when to go out so like i think that was like a very like interesting tactic that he put into place because that way he could avoid overcrowding in certain air, in certain places to really like grocery stores and stuff like that so i thought him putting that leadership was definitely like a huge thing like he was able to really um limit people going out by having that zip code rule by saying like oh the zip code only goes out monday and wednesday like he was able with that he was able to regulate things although people got mad at it i mean the country wouldn't if the country would probably if he didn't have that in place in that lockdown the country probably would have like thirty thousand infections so he definitely has proven that leadership that is extraordinary that i have never seen and i wish he was kind of that he was the president of the united states because i mean he he has shown that political leadership can be allocated for the good. And with that being said, I want to especially acknowledge him for his work, especially this week, this past Sunday. He was able to inaugurate the Nuevo Hospital del Salvador. It's called, it's basically Hospital Salvador. And he was, he had a press conference on Sunday inaugurating it. Um, this, this hospital is in, the Centro de Salvador, so San Salvador, and this hospital is has state-of-the-art technology that is, has never been seen in Latino America. The it is now the best hospital in Latino America. He was able to get the funds to impose this hospital because he he wanted to sign this hospital because he knew that in the next that this that this that this pandemic is going to be. This is a strong, it's not going to go away. So he was able to prepare this hospital and get the funds needed. Like the government of Salvador with the diputados wasn't able to really support him. So he was able to get the funds by asking his allies, like the Philippines, um, some in countries in Europe to really help him fund this um, hospital. And he hopes that this hospital can really be the innovation for this, 
for the pandemic and this hospital's like when we say the art like has the latest technology like as in taking temperature um having tests available having ventilators available really trying to um cure like citizens and the best part of this hospital is that this hospital is publico so several other health care system has public um hospitals and private hospitals private hospitals are mostly for people that have um money and able to really um um have that good um health care and basically um compared to the public hospitals that don't have the right equipment like they're like clinics that basically have to wait in line for a long time but this hospital is is publico so it means that anyone who is sick is able to go in they basically just need an id or like a dewey to basically get in and basically be treated so this so this hospital definitely is a step that's better than the private um hospitals because i mean they have better equipment than what the private hospitals have now so definitely gives a chance for people from low-income backgrounds to really get the health care that they need especially during this coronavirus so mm-hmm. it's, it's this hospital has a lot of hospital beds and equipment, so it's going to be able to really it's not working it's it started um working this week so it definitely um it's a huge step for salvadorians to really be able to have that health care access so him doing that is like a huge like thing that i'm really proud of and he, like I said, like from day one, he has been, he's been able to really have that change for a Salvador. And he, like, it's, it's good to see that he, like this, this country, this country, especially, especially Salvador needs that type of leadership because in the past has been corrupted. So Nayib Bukele, I, the, the fact that he's done this within a year definitely proves to see, like, it gets me excited to what he's going to do in the next, next couple of years. And like I said, like it, Salvador has been hit a lot recently, especially with, her, with the hurricane that just passed, the tropical storm Amanda, um, he's been able to really like put hasn't stopped fighting for his for his side of a lawyer. Like he is trying to really like like um, when that happens, the hurricane, like he was able to get um, supplies and everything to distribute to families. And also during this pandemic, he was able to um, he did a similar thing where he, like the United States, where they kind of had a stimulus check. So he was able to um, get the government to agree to give um, families um, who are low income $300. Um, I guess at the end, I'm pretty sure it was a one time thing, but it was like a $300 um, stimulus check to give to low income families who applied. Um, he was able to implement that. And some people were able to get that funding from the Gobierno Salvador, although it was kind of, um, it was kind of, it went through in, in a good way and a bad way because I mean, not everyone was able to get it, but he's been working to really allocate that and get people to really have a seamless check still. Because I mean, it's in Salvador, like not everyone has a bank account or has the ability to have like a address to get that check. Because I mean, there's people committing robberies and stuff. So like, it's very, um, that seamless check that he was, that he, uh, implemented for Salvadorinos, like it, it had its pros and cons about it. But he's definitely continuing to, in a way, try to make up for it, just to make sure that Salvadorinos have the supplies that they need and and for for survival. So he's been really trying to, um, like, advocate for for the pueblo, and like that to me is definitely something that I admire for. And I've never seen like a president really care for his people as much as he has. So. 
definitely like when like he makes me so excited as in like a a political leader because like it like people like that like inspire me and I am someone who's who's really advocating for Salvador because it's really close to home so it's definitely um, seeing him doing that is a huge thing all right, well, that's, that's a good final round of time. Thank you. <laughs> Let's congratulate uh, President Bukele, pues. Okay. Yeah, Bukele, yay. And, you know, He's doing great things. You're showing that, you know, there is there is hope in, in a country that, you know, gets stigmatized for the wrong reasons and get sensationalized in the wrong reasons and hopefully, you know, bringing that hope back in. Yeah, he definitely brings that hope and faith that many Salvadorians never thought that, you know, never thought that it could happen. Like, like I mean, Salvador has historically has been, like I said, corrupted by government, have so much violence. And that's why many Salvadorians are here now in the United States, because I mean, back like it historically hasn't been a country that's known to really have that hope and change. So him coming, him stepping up and, and really, um, really advocating, like I said, it's, it's, it gives hope to Salvadorengos, and hopefully he's able, this first year, like, he's been, he's had the ups and downs, but for the most part, he's been sort of successful in trying to really, um, you know, decrease the violence. I mean, like, Salvador is not an easy country to run. Like, countries are not easy to run. There's so many obstacles and barriers that each country faces, and Salvador faces a lot and continues to face a lot, but he's still, he's not, he's not um, provincial. Like, he's continuing to really advocate. So that's important. And that's the leadership we need here. So I wish Bukele was our president, but he's not. Yeah, yeah well, Salvadorians are known to be, you know, the hardworking, resilient kind of people, and that's the kind of president they have right now. So that's, I congratulate El Salvador for, El Salvador for having that kind of president. Yeah, right. So, you know, but thank you for those random thoughts. Yeah, um, another, another thing I want to address to people is um, the pandemic is not over. So people, please wear your masks because, I mean, like, when I walk around, like, when I do, like, my walk in the afternoons, I see people without masks. And, I, like, I live, like, in the downtown area and, like, it's, it's a public space and people don't understand that, you know, you have to wear masks. So I just want to address that because, I mean the these so many states that are reopening like every state's reopening but they need to people need to realize that's because things are reopening doesn't mean that we don't you know we have to maintain a social distance and wear masks i've seen too many people with with without masks that i'm just like gets me frustrated like it makes me want to like just slap a mask on them yeah everybody (laughs) yeah the the virus didn't go away no it did not like it's just ridiculous to see how everyone just like pretending like no one like is like is no one sick but i just really want to state that because i mean especially when we have these like systemic issues like if you're for black lives matter you and you're not wearing a mask like you're definitely you're not you're not at all so-called woke like you're not if you if if you were for black lives matter you would put on your mask because if you knew if you did your research you know the coronavirus the coronavirus base impacts people of color especially hard so you can't be for this if you don't follow the other issues like like you know the coronavirus is a is a public global global health issue not like it's public health issue but global so you can't be saying you're for black lives matter if you don't wear a mask like you know the coronavirus is is impacting the black community and people of color and people are people just because it especially it frustrates me because I live like I live in Bethesda like I said in like previous episodes like 
it's a predominantly white neighborhood. And so these white people have the privilege to have the access to healthcare. So if they get sick, they can afford it. So them not wearing a mask and saying that they, some of them being liberal and saying that they stand for Black Lives Matter and so on and so forth and other systemic issues, but they're not wearing a mask. And that means you're literally like not acknowledging it with the issues. Cause like for me, like I can't get sick because as, as a daughter with two immigrants who are essential workers, if I get sick, that means they get sick. And what happens? That basically impacts the household because my parents are not be able to work. You know what I mean? Like people need to acknowledge that they need to continue wearing masks because not everyone has the privilege or the, the ability to have a good health care insurance or really have the ability to lose their jobs. They don't have that. So definitely it's important that people need to recognize. Like I see in Bethesda all the time because everyone here and around me is basically in million dollar houses, like not wearing their mask. I'm like, lucky for you, like you have the ability to, to pay for if you get sick, like, but I don't. I wear a mask because I don't want to get sick. And even I care about people because I don't want to get other people sick because I know some people have a weak immune system. So I just want to really state that because I feel like a lot of people are not, are like relaxing about this pandemic because I mean, they still exist and people need to wear masks. Like if you, like I said, like it just, it's just like frustrating to see that people like, you know, um, stand for an issue, but then don't acknowledge that, you know, like another issue, like it all interconnects. It's intersectionality that really needs, people need to realize like the coronavirus is a huge public, is huge global issue that impacts low-income individuals especially minorities so i just want to state that to people out there like if you're not wearing a mask like when you go in public out public spaces like you can't be standing up you can't be standing for issues like that's what people need to understand that's my little your 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 final final random thought a final final round that that, that needs to be addressed like definitely all right well that is that is true you know Stop going outside and not wearing a mask when this pandemic isn't over. So, mm-hmm. so, but if it, I think that concludes our random thoughts now. Yeah. All right, well, that means we, we reached the end of the show. Yeah. This, this is good. There's a lot to yeah, This is a good episode. Yeah, there's a lot to, lot to tell. Yeah, all right, well, thank you again, Jackie, for you know, sharing your inputs and you sharing these random thoughts with me. Of course. All right, so. So that concludes another episode of Café con Leche Time, but we'll be back next week and also right in time to, talk, to probably talk about 4th of July because that's next week. Oh, it is. Yeah. I almost forgot about that holiday. Yeah. So well, who, knows? who knows what the news will, will look like next week, but until then, this, this is Jacob and this is Jackie and Jacob saying thank you for listening to another episode of Café con Leche Time and goodbye, everybody. Gracias, mi gente.